Today we will be continuing together in our study of the book of Hebrews. So if you will, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and to chapter uh, chapter 4. Before we look at the text for this morning, I would like to quickly review what was covered in the previous sermons on the book of uh, Hebrews. Um, The last time we are in the book of Hebrews was three weeks ago. And uh, Pastor Chad preached from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. His takeaway for that message was that Christ is exalted over Moses, and he's the only one who makes it possible for the children of God to experience God's rest. Before that, Brother Richard covered all of chapter 2, and his takeaway message for that sermon was, This salvation that comes directly from Jesus is necessary and exclusive. Before that, Pastor Tim preached from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 1, showing us that Christ is supreme and exalted over the angels, and therefore Jesus is enough. Pastor Mark opened the book by preaching the first three verses, showing us the overall supremacy of the person, revelation, and work of Christ in God's plan of salvation. We were reminded that not only was everything created through Jesus, but that Jesus sustains and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And Pastor Mark's helpful summary statement for the entire book was, Our unwavering faith in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus will see us endure all things until we receive our eternal reward in Christ. The focus of this sermon this morning will deal with the first part of this summary statement. Our unwavering faith in the completed and satisfying work of Jesus will see us endure all things. With that, let's read our text for this morning. Again, we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14, and we're going to be reading all the way through chapter 5, verse 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, 
he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I ask that you would be with us today as we open up your word. Lord, um, give us clarity. Uh, help us make much of Christ and his high priestly office, which we are the beneficiaries of. Lord, I pray that you would be with me, that you'd give me clarity as I speak, and that you'd be with the listeners and just uh, free anyone from any distractions. Uh, Lord, help us say everything and think the right thoughts for your glory. And we pray all these things in the name of our great and perfect High Priest, our Lord Jesus. Amen. So our passage for this morning continues to advance the argument that the author has been making from the beginning of the book, but especially beginning in chapter 3. In chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 4, verse 13, our author is warning believers of the danger of unbelief. Beginning in verse 14, the first verse that we will be looking at today, the author changes his approach. Rather than warning, he is now encouraging believers to be steadfast and unwavering in their faith. And this they should do in order to not be tempted to fall back into unbelief. He does this by demonstrating that in much the same way as Christ is the author and sustainer of life, as we saw in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1, Christ is also the author and sustainer of our faith and the faith of the original readers of this book who were tempted to fall back and renounce their faith. In other words, Christ is not only the ABCs of the Christian faith, he is the A to Z of the Christian faith. We do not come to faith in our own strength and we definitely do not persevere in the faith in our own strength. It is all through dependence on Christ from the first step to the last. In verse 14, our author is encouraging readers to uphold the faith. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, has passed through the heavens. Unlike the earthly high priests of the Old Testament who would go through the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, Jesus has passed through the heavens. Here the author is comparing and contrasting the high priests of the Old Testament with Jesus. This comparing and contrasting is one of the main literary and rhetorical devices that our author uses in the book of Hebrews. To understand the book of Hebrews, it is always helpful to think of the arguments as moving from promise to fulfillment, worthy to more worthy, image to substance. So back to verse 14, we see that in talking about Christ passing through the heavens, the author is showing that the Old Testament high priests were the image of which Christ is the substance. Jesus entered the actual Holy of Holies, and he did so with greater authority since he is the very Son of God, as the author mentions in this verse. And this should be a source of encouragement to us to be steadfast in the faith. Also, the implication of this verse is that Christ made the earthly high priestly office null and void. This is confirmed in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we read that when Christ died on the cross, the curtain in the temple that was torn from the top to the bottom. This is God sending a message that there is no longer a need for that veil that separated men from God. 
We no longer need an earthly high priest to go into the Holy of Holies, which is an image of the throne room of God, because now Christ himself is present in the very throne room of God. To revert back to the earthly priesthood after Christ has finished his atoning work and ascended to the right hand of the Father makes as much sense as a mother looking at a sonogram image of her baby saying, isn't she beautiful when her daughter has already been born and is sitting right in front of her. So again, Jesus is the reality that the Old Testament priesthood is ultimately pointing to. When we come to verse 15, we see that our author, like any good writer who is trying to persuade his audience, anticipates a concern or a question in the minds of his readers, and he addresses it immediately. He writes in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's telling believers that Christ being the Son of God does not mean that he is unable to understand their and our struggles and temptations. The divinity of Christ does not disqualify him from being a high priest, because Christ is also fully human, and therefore he is able to sympathize with sinners like you and me and the original readers of this letter. In other words, he's telling us that Christ, though the Son of God, is not removed from our pain, suffering, temptations. Christ not only understands our temptations, but he experienced them to the full measure. And how do I know that? Because the author tells us that Christ was tempted as we are, and yet without sin. This makes his trials more intense than ours. In fact, one commentator had this to say about the temptation of Christ. Being without sin shows that Christ's endurance involves more, not less, than ordinary human suffering. Because sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. So Christ's divinity makes him perfect, not distant. Again, the divinity of Christ makes him perfect, not distant. And if we're honest, we may at times think to ourselves that Jesus doesn't know what it's like to go through what we're going through. But if you ever find yourself thinking this thought, just remember Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, because this verse shows beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus absolutely knows what you're going through because he has been through worse. Now, without verse 16, you could never apply verse 6, uh, without verse 15, sorry, you could never apply verse 16. Because in verse 16, we are encouraged to approach God, God's throne of grace with confidence. Where do we get this confidence from? Is it from our goodness and from our righteousness? No. We get this confidence from what was said in verse 15 about who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. So having offered this short meditation on the person and work of Christ in verse 15, our author is able to move in verse 16 to encourage believers to approach God's throne with confidence to receive God's mercy and grace through Christ in their time of need. Of course, the time of need is the time of intense trials when the followers of Christ may be tempted to renounce or give up the faith. And the throne of grace is the very throne of God, where Jesus as our high priest sits exalted at the Father's right hand. 
So here again, we see that the author is con comparing and contrasting the mercy seat in the earthly sanctuary with the throne of God in heaven. So if the mercy seat is a type or an image, then the throne of God is the antitype, the substance of what the mercy seat signifies. Remember, it was before the earthly mercy seat that the work of atonement was completed symbolically on the Day of Atonement. But now, as we are told also in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, and again in chapter 12, verse 2, Christ is seated at the right hand of the heavenly throne of grace. Being seated gives evidence that the work of atonement has been completed, not symbolically, but in fact and in reality. Not only that, but rather than this opportunity being made available only once a year, as in the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, there's a now there's a constant availability of divine aid to all who are in need. And that's all of us. Because of Christ, the throne of God has become a mercy seat to which we have free access and from which we may all receive all the grace and power required in our hour of trial and crisis. So to recap, because of who Christ is and what he has done, we as believers in Christ can confidently approach the throne of God in order to receive what we need from God himself in our time of trial. Peter echoes this message somewhat in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, when he writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Meaning that we have everything we need in our Christian life in and through Christ. So again, we do not just need Christ to become Christians, we also need Him to walk with us day by day. And Christ has not stopped His high priestly service on our behalf before God the Father. Now beginning in chapter 5, the author moves to elaborate on verses 14 to 16 of chapter 4, and he does this by again comparing and contrasting the Old Testament priesthood with the high priesthood of Christ. So in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, our author reminds his readers of the qualifications of the high priest. In these four verses, he's saying that the high priest must be two things. First, a high priest must be able to sympathize with those whom he represents. Second, the high priest must be divinely appointed to his office. So again, able to sympathize with sinners and chosen by God. The author then points out that these two qualifications apply to the high priesthood of Ang. In the first verse of chapter 5, the author is communicating two ideas. The first is that the high priest is chosen from among his people, those whom he represents, which indicates that he too lives under the same conditions and faces the same temptations and trials. Second, his responsibility is to perform several detailed rituals, and these rituals he performs in order to deal with the people's sins before God. So again, chosen from among the people to deal with their sin problem before God through the offering of sacrifices. In the following verse, verse 2, he communicates two more ideas. The first is that the high priest is not only required to perform external rituals, but that he should be internally prepared as well. And this he does by being sympathetic towards those whom he represents. 
The word used to describe how the high priest ought to feel uh, is basically means that he's to be right in the middle between apathetic on the one hand and severely aggravated on the other. And the second point being communicated in verse 2 is that this high priest being himself human, he faces temptations similar to those faced by the people he represents. He is himself imperfect. Which is why, as we are told in verse 3, and as we saw last week, when the high priest appears before the mercy seat, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the sins of the people. And if you're interested, you can read about these things in detail in the book of Leviticus in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 16. In verse 4, he gives the example of Aaron, who was the first high priest of Israel. All these qualifications and descriptions apply and are found in Aaron. He was chosen from among the people. He performed the required rituals to deal with the people's sins before God. And of course, we know that Aaron was beset with weakness because the Bible records some of these incidents, uh, of which the incident of the golden calf as recorded in Exodus 32 is uh, the chief example. So now that our author has discussed the qualifications of the high priest, he turns our attention to Jesus to show us that Jesus met these requirements, yet he was without sin. So in chapter 5, verse 5, our author tells us that Christ met the requirement of being appointed by God and that he did not exalt himself to the office of high priest. And for the second time in this book, the author attributes the words of Psalm 2-7 to be referring to Christ. The first time he quoted the words of Psalm 2-7, You are my son, today I have begotten you, was in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. And that was in reference to Jesus sharing God's name, which makes him superior to the angels. Psalm 2-7 is also quoted in the book of Acts, in chapter 13, verse 33, when the Apostle Paul was speaking to his fellow Jews in a synagogue in Antioch, and he uses these words to indicate that the resurrection of Jesus was the fulfillment of these prophetic words spoken by God the Father. You are my son, today I have begotten you. So in the same way, our author talks about Jesus being both the high priest and the son of God, as we saw in chapter 4, verse 14, the first verse we talked about today. Our author now returns to tell the people that at the resurrection, this Jesus was officially enthroned as the King of Kings, as the Son of God, and as the Great High Priest. Our author is simply saying that the same God who has called Jesus His Son has also appointed Jesus to be the people's High Priest. So Jesus meets the requirement of being chosen by God. In the next verse, verse 6, he tells the readers what kind of High Priest Jesus is. Jesus is a perpetual and perfect High Priest priest. He does this by telling his readers that God's prophetic words to King David in Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These words actually apply and are fulfilled in Jesus. Now let's try to unpack this. Melchizedek shows up in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis in chapter 14 verses 18 to 20. If you remember, this is the passage that describes the meeting of Abraham, or Abram at the time, with Melchizedek. What happened was that Abraham was returning from the battle to bring back his abducted nephew Lot, and he met Melchizedek. 
And we are told that Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything he brought back from the defeated kings who abducted his nephew. And Melchizedek accepted the tithes and he blessed Abraham. The author of Hebrews, now listen to this because this is important. The author of Hebrews, inspired by the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of the book of Genesis, draws as much from what is not said about Melchizedek as he does from what is said about Melchizedek in that Genesis passage. So we know that Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High, as the Genesis passage tells us. We know that he was a king. We know that he blessed Abraham and that he accepted tithes from him. However, the author of the book of Hebrews understands the divine inspiration of Scripture to be the reason why the Bible does not record the genealogy or the lineage of Melchizedek. So by not telling us anything about the lineage of Melchizedek, the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of the Genesis account makes Melchizedek resemble the Son of God, as the author also says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. So whereas Melchizedek is a perpetual high priest as a type or typologically, Jesus is a perpetual high priest as an antitype in actuality and in reality. Again, think image to substance, shadow to reality. This is exactly what our author is doing here. Also notice that in Psalm 110 verse 4, God does not say that he will make him a priest forever after the order of Aaron. Instead, God says a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, indicating that the Aaronic priesthood is not and was not designed to be eternal. Whereas the priesthood of which Melchizedek is only a type and Christ the reality is eternal. So the author's point is that Christ's priesthood is more worthy than the priesthood of Aaron. Which should encourage us as believers to approach God with confidence and to remain steadfast and unwavering in our faith. Now we come to verse 7 where our author returns to discuss Christ's humanity in order to show us that Christ did indeed sympathize with our weaknesses. When the author says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, many of us may rightly be reminded of the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was crucified. And Jesus said, as recorded in Luke 22, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We are also told that Jesus was in agony and that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Again, Luke 22:44. This moment was the epitome of Christ identifying with us, the people he was about to represent before God, because Christ knew that he would be lifted up on that cross to pay the price for our sins all of our sins, and that he would die the death that we deserve in order to deal with our sins before God. Did you hear that? He would die the death that we deserve in order to deal with our sins before God. Now, if this sounds familiar, well, it's familiar because it should sound familiar because we just read these words a few minutes ago in chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The only difference is that Christ was himself the sacrifice on behalf of the people. And unlike the Old Testament high priests, 
Jesus needed no sacrifice for himself because he is sinless. So when the author says that Christ's prayers were heard, meaning that they were answered, he is talking about God the Father accepting Christ's sacrifice for our sins. Our author wrote this verse to show us that Christ understands our suffering, our trials, our pain, and our temptations because he has lived them. He is telling us that Christ does indeed meet the first qualification of a high priest, which is the ability to sympathize with those whom he represents before God. Continuing in verse 8, our author writes, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Well, what does that mean and how does it fit with the flow of his argument? Well, by speaking of Christ learning obedience, our author is simply telling us that Jesus experienced obedience through his suffering. And why does it matter that Christ, because of his suffering, experienced obedience? It matters because our author wants to emphasize that the divinity of Jesus does not spare him from the suffering that he experienced on our behalf. Because his divine nature is united to his human nature. So we do not have the option of thinking that God the Son did not experience suffering in his divinity. Because his divine nature and human nature are united in one person. Let me give you an analogy, and I must admit that like any analogy, it breaks down at a certain point. I was born in Egypt, which makes me Egyptian by birth. Later in life, I moved to the U.S. and I became an American citizen. Now, imagine that I returned to Egypt to visit family and you heard that I was beaten up by a bunch of criminals. Uh, of course, after crying and lamenting for a, an appropriate period of time, you think to yourself, you're probably not going to say, well, I'm glad that the American Ramon is doing fine, right? And likewise, I probably won't say, well, they only beat up the Egyptian Ramon, but the American Ramon is doing just stellar, right? Why? Because both the Egyptian and American Ramon are one and the same person. Same thing with Christ. So back to verse 8, although Jesus was the Son of God, he did indeed suffer because his divine nature is united to his human nature. And his suffering tested and proved his obedience to God. This makes Jesus our worthy and perfect high priest. In verse 9, our author explains the effect of Christ's suffering as it relates to his office of high priest. And he does this by using a statement that we had come across before in chapter 2, verse 10. We read in verse 9, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And being made perfect. That's the statement that we saw before. So again, what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? It means that he was made a perfect savior through his suffering. In other words, Jesus became fully qualified to be the savior and high priest of his people through his own suffering. And since as a result of his suffering, he became the perfect savior, it only makes sense and is only normal that he became the only source of salvation to all who obey him, as the rest of the verse says. Again, the author is emphasizing that the salvation granted by Christ is necessary and exclusive because no one other than Christ could accomplish and actually did accomplish this work of salvation. The author bookends this section by reminding his readers that Jesus was designated as a high priest by God himself and that being after the order of Melchizedek is, as we said, a sign that Jesus' priesthood is perpetual and therefore perfect. 
Now, this is not where the author ends the discussion uh, on the priesthood of Christ, that is, after the order of Melchizedek. Rather, this is only an introduction. As you will see in future sermons from the book of Hebrews, the author will go into much more detail to keep exalting the priesthood of Christ. In fact, many commentators see the subject of the priesthood of Christ to be the main contribution of the book of Hebrews to the canon of Scripture. Interestingly, this is the only New Testament book that explicitly calls Jesus our high priest, even though there are many references elsewhere in the New Testament that that confirm this reality. So why does all this matter? Well, it matters because if you really believe what you heard today, then you will be encouraged to remain steadfast in your faith and to persevere in the faith by completely depending on Christ. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. It has to be full dependence on Christ. You'll be encouraged to have confidence as you approach God in prayer because you know that Jesus atoned for your sins and therefore allows you to come near to God without fearing God's wrath. In part, this was the danger that the author was warning about in chapter 3 and most of chapter 4. The danger of not entering God's rest because of unbelief. However, in the text that we looked at today, our author is encouraging believers to be steadfast in the faith because of who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf. It is like two sides of a coin. There is danger in backsliding and walking away from the faith, but there's also a reward for faithfully faithfully obeying the great and perfect high priest whom God has chosen to deal with our sin problem once and for all. God has done everything that needs to be done in order to reconcile us and safely bring us near to him through the high priestly work of his son and our Lord Jesus. Just think about it. We are the ones who sin and disobey, yet God is the one who pursues and heals us. Not only does God save us, but he sustains us as we continue to walk close to him. We walk, he walks with us day by day. God the Son, our great and perfect high priest, intercedes for us before the throne of God. Because of his death on that cross, the great gulf that separated us from God has been bridged. If you turn your back on God and all the provisions that he made for you through Christ, then you are actively choosing to remain under God's wrath, and you are actively defying God. And as sad as that may sound, the words of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 apply to you. And these words are, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. These words mean that there is no more mercy to be granted because you yourself have rejected it. In 1833, President Andrew Jackson pardoned an inmate on death row. However, the inmate, George Wilson, refused the pardon. And the Supreme Court was asked to rule on the case. And the Supreme Court decided that if the prisoner does not accept the pardon, it is not in effect. Actually, here's what uh, the Supreme Court wrote. A pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it is tendered. And if it is rejected, we have discovered no power in this court to force it upon him. And therefore, Wilson was executed. Similarly, God will not force himself or his mercy on anyone. 
He offers His pardon. And He is also willing to walk with us after we accept His pardon. And because of Jesus, His door is always open for us to approach Him anytime, especially in our time of need. So if we accept His pardon and everything that He has done and is doing for us, then we can confidently approach the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray.